I experienced it firsthand. It was very, very recently. This my entire right arm paralyzed from the forearm up, and Steve yet to yet to Skype me fairly late at night to help me out. When I hear people claiming that I'm being a bioreductionist, oh god, which is just <laughs> utter shit, frankly. As far as I'm concerned, people smiling is probably the, the best thing, you know, when they're actually genuinely happy. So I'll, I'll support whatever makes people smile, not what keeps people trapped. What exactly is a split personality then? Like the clinical definition, because it's obviously thrown around colloquially all the time mm -hmm. as the either split personality or I've got... Uh, another one is I've got borderline personality disorder, which as far as I'm aware is incredibly mm -hmm. rare, but that's people diagnose themselves with that all the time. Yeah. So yeah. What, what, what is a split personality? Well, people have to be sure about what they mean by the term. It's like with schizophrenia, you know, it's not multiple personality, for example. But in common mm -hmm. parlance, you still hear people mistaking it for that, and it isn't that. You know, a, a schizophrenia is basically a fragmented personality mm -hmm. from a psychodynamic point of view, and that's completely different from the separation into individual sub-personalities, if you like, which some people seem to think is the case. What would you say, Ross? Well, it would be seen that way in psychiatry, certainly. Mm. As fragmented, yeah. Yeah, as fragmented, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it's, it's not that. It's not, it's not a term that's used no. No. in that context, in no. that way, is no. it? Like you say, it's become a, you know, just a colloquial way of describing such a thing, but it's mm. it, in professional circles, it's not thought of in that way. No, no, not at all. Well, if, you, if you look at psychotherapy, psychology theories uh, broadly, it depends which one you're looking through because each is a lens that will amplify or otherwise what it is that you're looking at. Um, split personality. Well, you know, uh, historically, if you go back to the beginning of modern mm -hmm. psychotherapy, you're going back really to James Bray, the founder of hypnosis, hypnotherapy. He's the guy who coined the term. And uh, studies on the dissociation of consciousness effectively starts then, although Bray does have a tradition behind him that goes back to the mesmerists. Um, yeah, so clinically then, in a psychodynamic sense, a, a split personality, uh, you know, dissociated state, yes, split, no. Um, within pop psychotherapy, and sadly this got through into the mainstream for a while and became quite popular, there was uh, so-called subpersonality work where therapists were encouraging people to reify, that is to turn into some kind of real subpersonality aspects of themselves that they, I'll use the term, fantasized about uh, or spontaneously produced in dreams over forms of imagery. Now, the problem with that is that if you start to believe that this thing that you yourself have created perhaps under the influence of suggestion of a therapist, is an alternative ego, ego, therefore personality to your own. You're actually creating a complex that has a persona, in effect, of itself uh, that is separate to you to such an extent that you believe it has an autonomous life. Um, so that, that's a problem that can come about. And you don't actually knit someone back together again by splitting them still further. Um, it sounds. Yeah. Um, so sorry, sorry to interrupt for a second, but it just sounds very similar to the at least some parts of the occult, 
because I've I've had I've I've had these experiences myself, and I know people who have. And it's like um, you summon servitors, and you summon things that sort of follow you around, and you can you can talk to. And I and, I, and people have self-professed to me as well. It's like, well, I have a split personality, and it's like, no, there's just it's it's not even like a piece of the ego that's necessarily fra- fractured off. It's just an image that you have in your mind. It's exactly as you're saying, it's like a little complex. But I'm I'm, I'm curious as to what a you know what people mean by split personality when they're asking questions like this is probably you know more schizophrenia or more fragmentation of a of an, an ego is that a possible thing that you could take the ego and it is fragmented you know it, and how do these things present clinically well you've uh, can, I, can, I, can i reel that back a bit james if, if that's okay to talk about the occult then we'll, we'll work back towards the sort of medical uh, position um we've plenty of experience of the occult um and spiritualists spiritual healers uh people working in the so-called western traditions uh, and also the Eastern traditions, where there are frank possession states uh, and taking on of identities uh, and such like. Um, most of this, most of it, if you boil it right down, is a performance uh, uh, similar in effect to stage hypnotism. That's going to be really controversial for a lot of people who believe in the reality of this or the, these phenomena as being anything other than that. But if you dissociate responsibility for your actions and then transfer that responsibility internally over to the suggestion of something else being there, that is a phenomenon that is entirely the same as what happens in stage hypnotism. Uh, with this, 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 this difference, with stage hypnotism, the bigger the audience, the easier the dissociation is. Um, so the more people who are watching you, the easier it is to split and to, to carry that over under the pressure of the audience's expectation and will that you will do this. So people do it. But this large audience then, when it comes to an occult system, in effect, the audience effect is transferred over onto the occult system. The occult system is the authority. The occult system gives the permission to do this. So in so-called normal people, and by which I mean truly normal in any other set of circumstances, then it is still a kind of performance, uh, similar to how an actor would perform, who would take on an alternative persona for a performance. Uh, and then there are gradations of that where you move into method acting, that kind of thing. So it's a progressive form of identification with the suggestion that you dissociate. People who do not dissociate within a system, an organized system, whether it's a cult, religious or, or whatever, but still dissociate, then they're more likely to be inclining towards mental illness. Um, mm. And uh, society has produced systems to deal with that, one of which is psychiatry and biomedical classification and diagnosis and treatments. That's, that's one. Another way of dealing with that uh, are the various forms of therapy that have evolved. Now, I'm speaking now of systems that are independent as such uh, from religions or from occult systems. This is just the way that culture, when it believes itself to be rational about these experiences, will deal with it. The problem with therapy is that it is not one thing. It's a very, very diverse bandwidth of approaches, each of which have assumptions built in some of those assumptions have never been tested as such. They're just accepted a priori. Uh, and that's where a lot of problems can come in. They're not pressure tested. But you then get a resultant effect with someone who has not been properly assessed 
and that then can lead to that person ending up in psychiatry with a serious condition that they otherwise would not have had. There are schools of psychotherapy that encourage identification with aspects of dreams, with aspects of fantasy, uh, it encourages them to enter into dialogue with inanimate objects as if the inanimate object was a person. You get this routinely in some of the more um, loose forms of counselling, particularly amongst those counsellors who describe themselves as eclectic. The justification apparently being that eclecticism is taking the best of various forms of therapy. Of course, they've never pressure tested that. They don't know what is best. It's, it's, it's usually absorbed because they like it and because it gives them some form of uh, distraction or control or manipulation over a person. They're not really interested in what the person themselves presents. They will superimpose this notion over them that this kind of fantasy, which in a psychiatric sense could go as far as a folly a deux, that is where the therapist and the patient or the client share an illusion or a delusion about what they're actually doing. So they, they can go along with that. Mm. Now, where it does have a genuine clinical effect, this kind of relationship, it's usually, and in fact, I would say routinely caused by suggestion. That is influence. The influence of the situation, including that of the therapist's suggestions, being taken on board by the clients or the patients, and then believed in sufficiently to get some kind of a result that they both agree upon as if it were real. That doesn't mean to say it's real at all, and it doesn't build in any safeguards for the suggestion that a person should fracture in that way. Um, Gestalt therapy does that, uh, and Gestalt therapy's been road tested enough to have reasonable protections in for anything that might go wrong. Uh, some of the less well-trained counsellors will not have that. Uh, these rather woolly eclectics will not have that. A lot of the fringe complementary therapists who use similar techniques will not have that. So you have to be careful. The absolute best method, if you can find the right training for it, for dealing with a dissociation, is the original method of dealing with dissociation, and that is hypnosis. Now, hypnosis, like therapy more broadly, isn't one thing. There are lots of different approaches to it, and you need the right one. If you get the wrong one, you're going to have problems. Those problems will include inflation in the therapist because they'll get off on the apparent control they have over someone. And it will also include dissociating somebody or causing damage that cannot be reeled back in or prevented, which of course is far better. But if you get the best kind of hypnotherapy experience and training, the very best at the apex of it, <clears throat> then it's unmatched by anything, any form of imagery absolutely any without a shadow of a doubt and I base that on long experience long long experience of pressure testing all sorts of methods from several different um, disciplines and, and approaches within so so in, in, why do just just as a, a quick clarifier why do you reckon yeah. hyp hypnosis or hypnotherapy is the best you know it's, it's, basically if someone's watching this and they're like Oh, yeah. Steve, Steve's upping hypnotherapy. Is there a, like a, a brief defense? Forgive me if, if it's too brief or anything like that. But is it because it's the original and we know that it bloody well works? Right? As you were saying earlier, pressure tested. Would that be the metric? Yeah. It, it is pressure tested. And what you say is absolutely right. And that is the starting point that it's the beginning of a proper study of dissociation. The early hypnotists were, were, were doing some incredible things. They were able to dissociate people without analgesic from limb amputations 
Yeah? So they felt no pain. That's an incredible amount of dissociative power and effect. So the patient remains conscious and would have the leg amputated after a wound or an infection. This is in the history of hypnotherapy and these were medics who were doing it. They weren't circus performers, they weren't stage performers, they weren't some of these uh, less well-trained people who are out there at the moment. These were seriously trained people uh, who did not have, at the time, analgesias. It wasn't a case of pouring whiskey down someone and half drowning them in an attempt to dull the pain whilst they got out you know, the sore and hacked their leg off. They performed proper surgery whilst in the state of dissociation between mind and body, so much so that the sense of pain had gone. And not only that, but a dissociation of the limb. So it was as if the limb no longer belongs to the person. So how could it hurt? It wasn't their leg. Yeah? That takes a significant amount of dissociation and separation. So it's been pressure tested massively, but you have to have the right person doing it. You really do. So uh, caution. The basics of hypnosis, as in trance induction, very easy to learn, although there are different approaches to it. So you can learn enough to damage somebody very, very quickly. And um, on our training courses for, for hypnotherapy, we always include modules uh, and uh, intense ones on working with people who've been harmed by the occult. So uh, our students had to experience Ouija boards, um, planchettes, table tilting, automatic writing, mm. Um, all sorts of dissociations um, and then progressively you'd move through other things so they, they would have to, to work with that and, and pretty much any other uh, aspect of dissociation stage hypnotism too because uh, in a clinical setting you get people who have been harmed by stage hypnotism if you don't know how that works and if you don't know how to reverse the effects of it then clinically you're not going to be effective so you need to know what the power of dissociation is and also, conversely, the power of reassociation of that material back. And this is my argument against subpersonality work and anything which tends to, to split the ego any further than it may already have been split by a trauma or by a neurosis. You don't knit somebody back together by breaking them down even more. Well, in the history of psychodynamics, this is relevant. It's relevant to the people in our discord. They've probably mm -hmm. come across the historical fact that Freud for example, gave up on hypnotherapy, on hypnosis. And that Jung likewise did as well. And they will probably think that that's sufficient justification to bin it. Well, that's um, an uninformed prejudice which has been around a long time and it pervades an awful lot of work. Freud would never, ever have worked out his theory of the unconscious or his clinical method without hypnosis, first and foremost. His uh, studies on hysteria with Joseph Breuer was, was based on that. He also admitted later in his life that, as he called it in his own prosaic way, the gold of psychoanalysis will one day have to be alloyed with the copper of suggestion. In other words, to bring it back in. Uh, and there is a school of hypnotherapy called hypnoanalysis, which has attempted to do just that. Similarly with uh, Jung. The methods that were used in their day were direct and authoritarian. No good hypnotherapist today uses direct or authoritarian approaches because they're so easy to resist and they're dependent on all sorts of other factors such as, with a medic, the persona medici, the doctor's presence, which gives authority for uh, the process. Also, Jung wasn't very good at it by his own admission. 
and it amplifies transference, which he found very, very uncomfortable. So did Freud. This is why Freud moved away from it. He, he found it was very, very uncomfortable. He was discovering the phenomenon of transference front line with, with Josef Breuer. Uh, and he, as I say, he found that all of these unconscious psychodynamics just ramped up massively. Of course they would, because you're digging so deep, so quickly, and so naturally into the psyche that these things are produced. So he developed other techniques, like the pressing technique, first and foremost, which actually is borderline hypnotherapy for lots of reasons, because inadvertently you're actually using a mesmeric, you know, Franz Anton Mesmer's technique there, um, and free association. Free association, if it's done properly, is brilliant. It's, it's, it's really effective. And even Carl Jung said, you will get to your complexes quickly if you use that method. So they were using imagery techniques all the time, but moved away from hypnosis. So psychoanalysis, including analytical psychology, were both founded on hypnosis and hypnotherapy. So was behavior therapy, Joseph Wolf. But again, these people were not good hypnotherapists. And that's a good reason to stop doing something if you're not very good at it and it, you don't actually find that you're getting good results. So it moved away. But it is a very, very powerful technique for inducing and managing dissociation and also dealing with people who are dissociated. But unless, as I say, you've been trained properly and have a really broad base uh, in psychodynamics, which for, for us is essential if you do hypnotherapy, you should be fully conversant with psychodynamics and psychophysiology because hypnotherapy is the bridge par excellence between psyche and soma. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's another fact that we can go into a clinical fact uh, in some detail another time. So I'm sorry that was a long answer. I hope it's, uh, it's helped. And if you could give me some feedback, I'll see if there's anything else I can do to, with Pauline to explain that further. Yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. I think perhaps it'd be a good idea to very briefly say what dissociation is because I was, I was listening noticing i was like presume it's like presume that people would, would know so basically all i'm thinking in terms of like comfort for the audience because I, I imagine if people are coming in we've had these comments before you know split personality occult i've been asked several times and and, and we should make an occult recovery guide so most of the time people coming into this are like i kind of suffering and i kind of want this stuff to go so i guess to avoid people misdiagnosing themselves as being dissociated yeah. or anything like that a good mm. idea i think well, a dissociation ranges from any normal everyday experience of not being able to focus your attention on something because you're tired <clears throat> or there are too many things on your mind just in everyday terms which basically in psychodynamic terms is the overloading of consciousness and we've discussed this in previous podcasts if that can happen under pressure from your alter ego complex any other complex uh, or anything else that's pushing through it's being overwhelmed that, that can lead it into a divisional separation of a transient kind in your mind so your attention's in several places at once, but in none of them adequately to manage what's going on. That's the basic initial form of disassociation, if you like, or dissociation minus the A, technically speaking. So a lot of it is actually normal then. It would just depend on your Absolutely. current physiological state. Because I, I noticed that as well. You were pointing out before, it, it might have even been a form of suggestion. You said to me, like, because I was dissociated for a bit and you were like, um, that you get dissociated when you're tired. And that's when I noticed as well that when I'm tired, I can't think. And I didn't actually notice that before, but it is a case. Like in the morning, you're fine. And then you slowly get more. It's a normal range, isn't it? Always. Always yeah. a normal bandwidth. And then obviously, you know, you can drift off into pathology as well. But yeah, 
most yeah. people have experience of these things. Yeah, for someone like you, James, who's um, a very refined uh, thinking type, mm. if your cognition is affected, you're going to self-suggest that you are in a dissociated state because you're losing your, your primary uh, grip on yes. how you handle and process information. And that then becomes uh, a positive feedback loop, positive in the sense that it over-amplifies, but negative in the sense of its results, that I also suggestion can feed itself to the extent that you do then begin to genuinely dissociate. Uh, and then we move to the next level. The next level of dissociation is heading towards what uh, Breuer and Freud and others described as hysteria. And then you get the psychosomatic transductions of information, which you experience yourself. And then you get the psychosocial transductions, which the people around you will experience as disturbances in, in your relationships to others. And that then can affect them. And it just goes on as a, as a replicant effect where, where the information within yourself has been turned firstly in, into physical symptoms and into psychosocial expression. So it can just ripple out. This happens in families and young identifiers. Yeah, I'd like to say just really quickly, if you don't mind, on the on the hysteria thing, that it's it's very, very real. The uh, Freud and Breuer studies on hysteria are very, very real. Two things. One, very... Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I experienced it firsthand. It was very, very recently. This, my entire right arm, paralysed from the forearm up. And Steve, you had, to, you had to Skype me fairly late at night to help me out. With, with this, I was like, why, why does my arm not move, you know? Yeah. Um, and then additionally, we're working with a guy, I'll leave him anonymous, of course, but at the, at the, the diode consultation tier, who, who's, who's been uh, presented with, with a form of dissociation. And mm. um, we, we, we've been helping him. It was, seemed to be a fairly simple fix as well. But just to illustrate this stuff is, I wouldn't say common, common, but it's real. And I know that it's real. And it's incredibly strange. Yeah, but, but, but I think like you were suggesting using it for, for pain control, pain mm. relief. Mm. Um, I was kind of also reminded, unfortunately, in some respects of things like um, the use of hypnosis for, for women for labour. Mm. Um, and um, I mean, that's one way of doing it, obviously. Um, another way sometimes is through medication, even things like gas and air produce a dissociative state. Um, and you obviously we've been talking about hyperventilation a lot as well uh, which has its place in labor and childbirth as well so there are many positive mm. uses to which it can be put too um which we tend to emphasize the sort of the mm. you know the, the, the suffering side of things but but somebody um say like yourself james who kind of readily dissociates uh, in some way um, can it, nonetheless it could be seen as a very valuable thing and something to work with um, so if, if you were to be working clinically with someone you, you'd have a first excuse upon hand experience of that um, but you could probably also um, you could probably also change that into a positive as well for that person yes uh, on, on the idea of me readily dissociating I've had it my entire life and it, it was really weird I don't know when it stopped or when it started. I remember going to my aunt's house when I was like seven or eight. And I remember going, mummy, mummy, mummy. I'm not really here, am I? And she was like, yes, you are. I was like, but I don't really feel like I'm really here. So yeah, I do. I just tend to sort of woof away. So there, there, it, it could be uh, an earlier thing in my own personal myth I've yet to deal with. I even dissociate with, with you two. When I, when, I, when I come up and we spend a day and we go over some stuff, we go to the old cafe. And normally when we get to the cafe, it'll be like... Broom. And I just dissociate away. So it's just part of me. I'm not particularly bothered. Most of the time, they're also symbolic as well. And it's, it's, um, it is a and case so, of... And, and some of it's bottom up as well that we've now discovered as well. 
because of, of your, you know, your time on the capnograph and so on, that's more likely to, to put you in that kind of a state as well. So it, it's, it's not all top down, is it? It's um, a lot of it's to do with body chemistry as well. It will be. It will be. Yeah. And that's been very useful to know. The, 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 the more rested I am, the less chance of me dissociating. It's, it's been quite common over the last year for me to be dissociated just for the, the first hour of the day until I get breakfast, until my energy ramps up again. You know, yes. I, I, that's probably fairly normal for lots of people as well, you know, just as when you're going to, to sleep. Yeah. You know, there's, um, yeah. there, there's a weird we've, phenomenon we've as well. We've been careful not to pathologise everything, yes. haven't we? Yeah, yeah. I mean, is, is it causing you sufficient suffering or not? You know, and, and yes. if it's not causing suffering or unpleasantness, then it's okay. It's being a dissociation and a separation, isn't it? Well, what today or no, no, we, we, you've discussed this with me in the past that, yeah. that in effect working with artistic and creative media is a dissociation yeah yeah it is an effect yes yeah, and um, do you mean about your your pen name forgive me if that wasn't what you were talking about but there is there is a case of having say that well, on the topic I, I of split know, personalities but, but you know yeah, you've you've be, got um, tom as well i meant um if we go back to the creative podcast we did yes uh, working with any kind of media like that is mm. an attempt to separate the ego from itself sufficiently to allow the unconscious in. So there's there's lots of different ways of using dissociation. Are you thinking about flow states again, Stephen? Um, well, an enactment is a dissociation. It's a graduated form of dissociation. Yes. Uh, there's the process yes, of being mm. absorbed in the in creative yeah. process. Yeah. A sound phrase is dissociative. Anything mm. which involves the projection of symbols, mm. which is translating a language, the language of the unconscious, from one form to another that can be shared and also experienced yes. reflexively. That's a dissociative process. Mm. So any kind of engagement of attention, which is other than usual, is a, is a dissociation. And, and there are healing ways of, uh, of doing that. Yeah, it's a kind of an earthing of it, really, isn't it? It is. And it's all form. very productive and positive. Yeah. I mean, in a very, we were saying earlier, Steve, in a very extreme form, you get uh, things like fugue states, well, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, if, if you think about the the biopsychosocial model, then you get the, the the psychosocial expression of it, where people literally take themselves off and might assume a completely new identity somewhere. Sorry about the intrusion from the outside. No, it's all right. It's all right. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and for the time that they're in that fugue state, the whole world view is is coloured by the new identity that they've um, conferred on themselves and it can be a very difficult thing for families for example to understand um, why somebody might do that why they might dissociate so completely that they would literally take themselves say away from the family home um, and assume a completely new identity but but it, it, it's very very rare but it does it does happen but that's really at the you know the far extreme um in terms of dissociation i don't think anybody watching this should be worried about that unnecessarily but it, it is a, a good example of, of how extreme things absolutely can get. yeah it, it can happen people do at that point as you say assume other identities um so it's an additional temporary personality normally <clears throat> and, and then people gradually drift out of that state and there's a separation in recall and memory there is and so forth you can only assume I guess at one level, at a psychological level, that um, however they've been living their lives has been so terrible mm. in some way that mm. they literally want to uh, adopt a new identity for themselves and almost to, to start over. 
Um, it is hard to imagine that there could be such a complete mm. separation, but, but yeah. there is in those cases. Yeah, so thanks a lot. The, um, the whole idea of dissociation and basically is a division. So it's the beginning of neurosis, if you think about it, uh, of contents from within ego consciousness. And it's how far they get split mm. and what happens to them after that split. If um, you have a set of ideas that you refer to and then separate from, but in the separation from them, you don't break them down. In effect, you can leave them to act as an autonomous unit within the overall economy of your psyche. That will mean that as they drift away and start to become more and more unconscious, they're not losing their effect on you at all. Gravitational, if you like, they're still draining you. Uh, and then you can get an unconscious neurosis created by a division within consciousness. Um, if that goes too far, as I think we were saying the other uh, yesterday or last time we did, um, mm. the last podcast we did, you, you can then get this transduction into the body and it goes so far, you have no memory or recall of ever having these ideas and then yes. they, they just disappear by being written in another language. They become, in effect, part of your metabolism uh, and follow a fracture line into your body. And at that point, purely psychological approaches of the usual kind can't even reach them because it appears to be a disease. And then a person starts to have all sorts of tests and there's, there's nothing there. Mm. Or maybe there is, because some of these ideas can turn up, say, as hypersecretion of acid in the stomach. And before you know it, you do have a disease because a whole batch of ideas and emotions have disappeared, somaticized, and are now represented and active at that level. It might be hypertension, and then you end up being on medication for blood pressure, purely because you divide it at some point, and those ideas or those stresses separated from consciousness, and then just took the elevator down into your body. So all, all sorts of things can happen then because you're being treated medically nobody thinks there's a psychological element other than saying you should relax but as we were saying the other day if uh, you're actually a hyperventilator and that has been part of it then relaxing can get you into further trouble oh, yeah. mm. uh, th th this needs to uh, to be looked at physical relaxation can create a lowering of consciousness it's supposed to that's why you relax it's not just relaxation in the body and there's no effect on the mind even if you focus on physical relaxation there'll be a change in state of consciousness that will mean that things which are lower down will start to rise up and if they're too unfamiliar or too threatening and you could normally deal with them then instead of a dissociation you get an association to consciousness and they become incorporated perhaps into the ego and become a real conscious problem which causes a further split and then perhaps more things to be lost and gradually a person gets into a terrible state. So dissociation is normal. It's partly a product of the fact that we can't contain that much within our conscious mind. There's only so many things we can identify with before we have to start to store them away more remotely. Um, and then under pressure, the, this process can lead to somaticization and then the loss of psychological contact, and it can uh, lead to pathology in our social relationships as well. And when people are in that state, they can start to absorb su suggestion from a higher level of the sociocultural world. That is to say, from belief systems, from manner personalities, 
uh, and other things which then just get internalized and start to feed one or more complexes perhaps unconsciously and they then project more of their energy as tension against the the ego which is already under on the pressure so gradually you get a real mess um and the real value of hypnosis is that it is a way of getting mm. into all of this and starting to sort it out and it can do it in a way that other techniques like active imagination sorry guys if you think that that's the panacea it isn't clinically it's not it's it's okay for self-exploration if you're relatively stable but if you're unstable and you start to do active imagination you're going to create problems for yourself and then there's a problem over defining what active imagination is yeah there's a certain amount of snobbery in Jungian circles about what's defined as it and then it's as if you have to have certain initiations just to be able to do it to be able to get to this level and it becomes cultish and mm. occultish yeah. when really there's only so many ways that the mind can naturally dissociate before it falls under the sway of also suggestion yeah and remember i was saying earlier about how belief systems that the ego incorporates and identifies with creates the interpretation of what's happening and it may not be real at all it becomes a fantasy at that point so how do you prove that you're doing active imagination through imagery of course you can do it through other means than just imagery but how do you prove you're doing that what's the criteria that sets that apart from any other use of imagery you can verbalize it and you can you can write it down and you can create these constructs which can suggest to yourself that there is a difference what i'm concerned with practicalities in real life and the best way to test anything like that is with someone who doesn't know what these things are supposed to be but is actually split and in a state of distress then you find out what's real and then you find out what works so what we think of perhaps as active imagination is great for personal development great for amusements um, great if you think you're following a particular line of inquiry should we say into your self-development and into that of other people but there's a reason why it's not used in healthcare it does like with a lot of stuff in some of the more esoteric uh, aspects of psychodynamic therapy there's a real practical obvious reason why you don't see it it's not because it's some super turbocharged uh, use of imagery it's because it's probably a fantasy and when you you work with someone who's distressed it's like creating a meal. You throw all sorts of ingredients and in. all you're doing is chucking something else and you probably won't even be able to taste once you've cooked the meal because the thing in itself is a mess. Yeah? So it just doesn't work. It'll work as a distraction. I, I really enjoy it as a distraction, to be completely honest with you. It's, it's, yeah, uh, it's, it's really, really entertaining. But I, I will say, so I, I agree on the whole criteria thing. I, I, in many ways, I like to do away with the criteria and just say that it's, you know, allow yourself to explore the images that come up in the psyche or try and put yourself in, into dreams or put yourselves into particular images because it is and it, it gets you in touch with, with the psyche. And I think it's a way of basically saying to the psyche, I'd kind of want to engage with you, you know, but also I have noticed as well that some of the images that usually historically would pop up for me were complexes. There's a particularly interesting one where I, when I was dealing with, as everybody has a mother and a father complex as they, or a series of as they go through life, one of the things that was in my father complex was an interest in kings and queens. And so I noticed actually that whenever I'd go into either an active imagination state or like a pseudo trance state, like a beginning of a trance state, kings and queens and things would show up. I had, I had John of Gaunt turned up, Edward Woodstock turned up, 
Um, who's, uh, Henry the Fourth turned up. Blanchet, I think she's called, of Lancaster turned up. And I was like, what? What's all these kings and queens turning up? I must be important. It's like, no, it's because you're trying to put yourself into this royal family type scenario. So it is the complex orchestrating what you think is your own active imagination, which which can be informative. But as you were saying, if, if you're less less of a stable ego, then there's you know you can buy into something like that. It's got such strong suggested power to it. So well, apart from that, it's good fun. I mean, obviously, you've just disclosed that they're part of that those figures represent things that you've learned and associated and about, and that's normal. So it's not so much a dissociation of an experience that, that that's you associating to yourself. Yeah, to I, I, mean, I mean, in terms of um, you know, active imagination, some of the it might not necessarily be a I'm going to go explore my psyche and, and create wonderful worlds for myself. It's more like what you're talking to or what you're interacting with might be the thing that you need to defeat in order to move yeah. forward with your individuation you just won't know it because it's, it knows how to yeah. play with you the, the, the value in, in terms of personal development of, of active imagination methods is real you know but I, I was talking clinically working with people who haven't been told that such a thing even exists and who are suffering but if you, you you're doing it for per, you know for personal development and exploration mm. it has its place so long as you realize what it is the best form of active imagination which has no presuppositions whatsoever about what you're going to experience. Right? That's different. That's very different. You, but getting there is not easy. Uh, if you use the traditional active imagination approaches, however, there are approaches in hypnosis that will get you there very quick, very, very quick without the suggestion of what you will experience or would experience, but accessing those states. It's so fast. It can be lightning fast, if you're properly trained and experienced with, with hypnosis, you don't need to go through some of the other things. And of course, there's all sorts of other cultural systems as well from other cultures. Um, and you, you can say that they're dissociative. They're only dissociative if you reach a certain critical point. Uh, and that is where you're either on the edge of, of losing ego identity. And I mean, in a pathological sense, because dissociation, when you get that far, becomes pathological. Or you're using a very, very refined system of separation of ego from the unconscious and your ability to experience things. So trying to make some very subtle and nuanced distinguishing uh, uh, points there. But I would always, sorry, I would always caution people against assuming they know what they're doing because they read about it in a book. Or, you know, uh, there's so much of that in, in this age where, you know, just clicking on Google is, is enough to acquire knowledge that is not earned through direct experience. You have to make a lot of mistakes, an awful lot, mm. and suffer, yes, suffer an awful lot before you can know for sure what it is that you're experiencing. And the use of imagery in terms of, of healing people who've suffered from traumas, working with post-traumatic stress disorder of one kind or another, you, know, uh, you have to be so careful. Don't just say, well, let's do some active imagination or even guided imagery or directed fantasy thinking or any, any technique from gestalt or transactional analysis or any of the other schools of therapy. And if you think you're following Jungian thought with respect to uh, active imagination, go and check out all of these other methods, see what they're doing and then pressure test it and say, are these things the same or are they different? And if they are different, is that just because of what they're called? Is there something different about the process? Is there something different about the outcome? If you don't have enough experience, you can't be certain. Well, you so, can put things there that, that weren't there originally at, yeah. when the trauma mm. happened. You can. you can insert things. You can, 
which is terribly dangerous, isn't it? It is. It is. It does happen. Mm. Um, you, you, you can have so-called recovered memories with, with, with people who misuse hypnotherapy. You know, that, that aren't real. It didn't happen. You know, there's, there's so many dangers. Uh, and it's not just hypnosis, but it's any form of imaginal technique that involves the past. You have to be very, very careful with it. You have to work with real memories and then separate those real memories off from the associations that are made to those memories because they are associations. I, I, um, I do have to sympathy with, say, people watching this, perhaps, who are interested in the more psychonaut lifestyle. I don't like that word very much. You know, I want to engage with my psyche because a lot of the blame for a lot of these things come from people who have learned these techniques. They've learned the theory they just don't exercise responsibility when sharing it with other people because the idea of the collective unconscious is a is a is an idea and it is a valid idea and it is based in philosophy and it is based in science and an actual you know empirical evidence it's not a woo woo fluffy playground which and this is where most you know most people won't think that consciously but that's the general presupposition going into this so i've spoken to loads of people over the last couple of years including myself as well being like you know i i saw the tree of life in a vision that must mean i'm seeing an image of the self which means there must be something important going on in my life and the, the collective unconscious has chosen me synchronistically it's like no actually no and if you two hadn't have come along I would have still been stuck in that state. And the reason reason why I guess I'm working with, with you two and the reason why I like that kind of attitude is because having that level of reflexivity and you can learn that consciously helps you. And that's 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 the presupposition we should be with with all of this. It's like what we're doing should be helping people and to stop people from suffering. And if you want to go have fantasy time, that's absolutely fine. But just just have a have a clear head going into it because it is dangerous. And I don't, don't I don't want to spoil people's fun because it is fun. But it is dangerous. Line, I've, I've, I've experienced yeah. it my, myself. You know, I've I've gone into weird states before. I've had waking visions before, and without having grounded and it wouldn't be my fault it's because the resources out there are absolutely terrible quite frankly it's like well of course i'm being visited by the collective unconscious no you're not you've been visited by a complex a personal complex that you have picked up over the course of your life and it's like no one else talks about complexes in Jungian circles i've not seen it no they don't they don't because it's, it's awkward it's the stuff of everyday life it's awkward though, yes it? exactly because it brings people down to earth and, and you deal with reality and the Jungians, as an orthodoxy, uh, fled the field. And that's why we have CBT. It's their fault yeah. that we have CBT. Sorry, I, I was just going to add that uh, if every day is awful for you, mm. as in your existence is terrible, mm. you might look to things like that yeah. to elevate yourself. You yeah. might look to ideas to yeah. make yourself feel better and completely yeah. understand that. Yeah. But there are all the hidden dangers, yeah. uh, you know, as you've described. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one thing rejecting, as I might appear to be doing, and believe it or not, I'm not rejecting the validity of other people's experiences uh, when they encounter symbols and narratives and all the rest. It's one thing if you've never had them yourself and you've mm. never explored them to come across with some of the views that I come across with. Mm. But I've been there. I've yeah. been there. And you know, somebody, some of the people who are, who are making comments are, or have made comments mm. about that recently on Discord have absolutely no idea what my personal experience is or how far I've gone and what I've gone through with, with so many things. Well, that's why it must be a transference. Exactly. A lot of that because is, they don't know no, you. No, they don't. They don't. And, and the subject of a person's transference or the contents of a transference always shows where a person is at. And, and you know, these things do reveal themselves. I wouldn't, and I never do. I don't comment, for example, on the Discord about people's religious beliefs. 
and under religion I would put a cult or anything like that, you know. I don't get involved in the dream analysis either because people are exploring that for themselves and people should. However, I reserve the right, the absolute right, to, to express what my own experience is and what the summation of that experience is from within my own context, which is clinical, mm. of working with other people. If I, if I was only ever interested in myself and not in helping other people, then yeah, great, I'd, I'd have been in there and stayed there because it's a wonderful playground. A wonderful playground. But that's all it is. But that's all it is. Uh, but it's also dangerous. You can get yourself hurt in a playground. You can fall off things, you know. And and if if you then go and try and help other people, you have a responsibility of a duty of care to them. And and that for us is primary and always has been. Mm -hmm. um, I've done a lot and I've been in a lot of strange places. And I've had all sorts thrown at me, including the occult. I've had curses put on me. Mm. I've had the evil, you know, stuff passed on papers from from Chinese people yes. with, with, against uh, the whole family. Against actually. the whole family, mm. target. We've had all sorts. I've, I've had uh, people come in with their spirit guides trying to attack me. I've had all of that. I've had a load of Western stuff done as well. Um, and you know, I'm still here. You know, people are, it's your channel at the end of the day as well. And of course you have a duty of care to give to people, absolutely. But you're also your own person, your own personality. And it could come across perhaps as a, as a fierce INTP personality. It's like, this is what I believe. There is no fluff. There is no nonsense. You know, but I, I, I think the audience supports everything that you're doing. And there's some, some of that's come from the fact that, you know, I served as a frontline police officer. And I, and I knew when I was young, there were a lot of people who were afraid of the dark. And you can take that metaphorically as being the unconscious. They were afraid. They wouldn't go out and do nights in some of the roughest areas of Merseyside that I did uh, and face people on your own, unarmed, and without body armor, without CS gas sprays, without yeah. telescopic patterns, without any of that, on your own. They wouldn't do it. And I would say, yeah, that, that's, that's something real to be afraid of. People you should mm -hmm. be afraid of in the dark are people, mm -hmm. not ghosts, not spirits. <laughs> Didn't find any. You find them in here and in your own head. We're out in the natural world at night in the dark. You don't. You find other people. They're, they're, they're the problem. Human nature itself is the thing that you have to come to terms with. So that reality, you know, of life and death, the immediate experience of other people's death and being responsible for handling the threat of that against yourself and against others, it grounds you. It, it takes you away. And to, and to have been put in that position at age 18, as I was, and as many other people are. It's, it's not the experience of war. I have immediate and unconditional default respect for anyone who has put their life on the line mm. in, a, in a wartime position. That, 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 that's something I've never gone through. But I have gone through something, and I've gone through enough, enough to know what the real world is. But I've also been what you call the psychonauts. And I've been there not in my own head alone. I've been with other people in their psyche, in, in the psyche of their family, and I've seen the distress and how that affects people in so many ways with Pauline. We've both done it, we've both been there and done it. And in that respect, we do have a lot of experience. I'm happy to share that. I will not personally negate anybody else's experience. If you want to talk about it objectively, about the validity of a particular view, I will give an opinion, and I will give it on the understanding that that opinion is relative in terms of anyone else's you know over validity um uh, but you know i've reserved the right to say this is my experience and then accept anyone else's 
on the basis of live and let live. Yeah? If we all did that, we'd all get along, but some people can't allow that to happen. And fundamentally, when they don't, they're affecting themselves even more than they affect other people. Yeah, this is why you stress the whole, you've got experience side of things as well, because you know, and in many ways, it's kind of a, you know, there will be a disconnect. So there are many variables here, aren't there? There's kind of like a duty of care, and then there's a disconnect between levels of experience clinically, but then there's also difference in levels of experience in terms of life. So if you have been there, deep in people's psyche when they're suffering, with people on the streets dying, it's like you're going to be shaped by this, you know? And it's like, and so that will then create such a disconnect between, you know, people who've discovered Jung or coming through from Jordan Peterson, which is most people coming in, in, into Jung who want to kind of play and explore. And then, you know, it's, it's going to be a difficult dynamic to manage, to be completely honest, because it's either like you don't be Steve and you, and you adapt to the frame of the culture or there will be this divide. And then it's like the people with the eyes to see who are reflexive enough will be the ones who will respond and the ones who can be helped. But you can't help everyone at the end of the day, you know, especially it's through the Internet as well. So I, I wouldn't worry about it. And the pe people are supporting you anyway, like like the, the support for the channel so far. We started it two months ago properly has been absolutely overwhelming. And, and I think it's a sign that we're, you know, we are making ourselves different and we are making ourselves yeah, premised yeah, on the yeah, idea that we want yeah, to reduce people's different. suffering. I think, I think it's true to say the people with our experience don't do this normally. They just don't. You know, um, but we've always been rebels ourselves. I was a, a rebel in the police. I, I stood up against that culture and against its corruption in those days. Um, I've been a rebel in the psychotherapy field. Uh, and I've always advocated when I was in the police and then as a therapist for people who were vulnerable and couldn't otherwise advocate for themselves. That's my personal myth, if you like. And it, it's, it's also my personal equation. When you get to the, the end of understanding your personal myth, and it takes a lot of hard work, it really does, because you have to strip away all of the ego fictions. You then have a place to stand. That's your personal equation. The personal equation that defines the best side of you, and it defines your limitations. If you can accept them, where you begin and where you end, the, the validity relative to other people of, of your experience and of your life, then you can begin to individuate. No? So you have to be able to do that. You have to have the courage to look inside yourself and find ultimately what that is you can't let go of. There'll be some things that define you so firmly that have been there from the beginning you can't let go of. But that's such a thin thread compared to everything that's wrapped around it. And one weave in that thread for me is that I have always advocated for people who are vulnerable. Default. Always. And I don't think I'll ever stop doing that. Well, James is like that. He is. From some yeah. of the experiences yeah. he's shared with us yeah, as well. Absolutely. Yeah, done absolutely. Similar things. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So I'm more than happy, more than happy, we both are, uh, to share our experiences. Don't absolutely. want to override anybody else's. Not at all. No. But if I'm asked something, mm. then on the basis of a fundamental honesty of disclosure, if somebody says, what's your view? And provided giving that view isn't going to hurt an individual person who could be hurt by what I would say, then I'll say it. Well, we're here to be as transparent as we can be. Yes. Aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But you won't get people who've got 40 years experience doing that. You just, you just won't. And, and people who go on about the East, get some experience of it before you quote them. Well, we're having it now. Yeah, well, yeah exactly. Yeah, what, what's going on. They're the most hierarchical people. You know, and I love them. 
I loved them. I've, I've spent 47 years of my life at the heart of some very, very strange Eastern, I'll say, groups around which cluster an awful lot of things. Some of it's esoteric, some of it's psychological, some of it's cultural. Uh, and it's been a fascinating place and I've really enjoyed the contrast between that and between the West. And it's been one of the things that, that's, that's helped to make me. And uh, I was allowed in through the door, as they call it, through the gate, through the esoteric gate. Yes, esoteric initiations properly inside that Chinese community. Uh, mm -hmm. Lynn Liverpool, the oldest Chinese, Chinese community in Europe, deep down. Uh, and I learned a hell of a lot. Uh, one of the things that I learned, though, is that uh, it's not what you think. It really isn't. As one Chinese master said, sitting on top of a mountain in China, really funny. He, he was filmed at the top, martial arts master and, a, a, and a, a, Taoist, a Taoist. One of the wisest of the wise. And this camera crew went up and asked him, what did he find at the top of the mountain? And he said, nothing, because there's nothing here. And that was it. And he didn't mean that in the sense of Zen either. This is from a Taoist perspective and from a human perspective. You don't find truth on top of a mountain, no matter who you are. But like you say, it's, it, it's such a, a, a massive brand, uh, brand uh, bandwidth yeah. of experiences okay. that you can have, that you can yeah. enjoy and that you can learn. But if you're not on the journey, you can't learn. Yeah. Uh, and if you're just busy throwing rocks at people who, who are ahead of you, you know, on, on that journey, no matter who they are, you're not actually on the journey. You're, no. still, you're still in an infantile state if you have to do that. It's, it's, a, it's exactly the same as uh, mm. resenting an elder brother or an uncle or a, a parent for their experience in the world that you haven't got. Just go and get it. Go and get your own experience. As soon as you decide to do that, you're on your way and you have a validity that sets you apart from the people who will not do that. Yeah, and if you think the East has a better way of dealing with it, it well, it absolutely doesn't, doesn't, does it? It just has a different way. Yes. It is very different. Oh, yeah. Um, it's so hierarchical. You, you basically wouldn't get this kind of, no. you wouldn't be told anything. No. You, you'd be no. made to kind of suffer for your oh, yeah. wouldn't oh, you? Yes. Oh, yeah. All the cows are kept away there. from you. It's, it takes years and there, there yeah. are gradations of access, mm. you know, and it's only when you pass through that esoteric gate and then, then you, you, you're then uh, a closed door disciple. Only then do you learn the secrets. There are secrets, but it's only then that you're going to learn them. All the rock throwing won't do any good. In fact, if you do that in, in an Oriental culture, you're very likely, they have a saying that if the nail stands up, you knock it down. They won't take it. They're completely yeah, intolerant. The uh, Confucian philosophy in terms of, of the hierarchy is still very much there. Um, what we're doing, for example, by trying to share this openly for people, they would regard that as sheer horror. Yeah. You can't do that. You mustn't do it. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's probably good to add a clarification as well on the idea of disagreements or not. Because obviously this is half the heels of stuff we've been dealing with recently. You know, like, mm. disagreements are fine. But then mm. one of the criteria for actually being on the journey, I think, is being able to spot people who aren't. It's kind of yeah. that's almost like a special superpower, if you like. You you, you can spot yeah. inferiority complexes straight away, and you and you can you know and, and you can make this is the, this is the difference. Rock throwing, mm. you know, you can be like, well, maybe he wasn't, maybe he was, you know, have a little argument about it. It's like when you see, you see, and there is no beating about the bush. 
you know it just becomes absolutely and utterly crystal clear and you know being on on the journey as well it sounds like a sort of like a mystic thing if if you just say go on the journey outside of context but it's simply a case of you know just just make an intention to the psyche that you want to make a change that you want to find out who you really are it literally comes down to that and then i mean this is this is how i work with people in consultations for example or people who reach out sincerely to me it's like if you make that intention properly and if i can get get across to the person that i'm respecting Mm -hmm. them as well and their own Mm -hmm. psyches usually things happen immediately you know the, 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 the the real litmus test of this as well is i get asked so many times how do I remember my dreams? And I always say, you know, you know, you will remember you, you, you will remember your dreams or make an attempt to, so, you know, they write it down the next morning or whatever. They're like, well, I can't really remember it. Immediately they start to remember their, their dreams. It's a case of, you know, it's, it's not out to other people. It's into yourself. First of all, that's individuation. There has to be a sincerity yeah. about wanting yeah. to do it. Doesn't that? Yeah. You have to open yourself up to that. Obviously you'll also notice that from my own activity on the discord is I never ever diagnose anyone. I don't do that. I don't say you have this problem, you have that problem. If somebody wants to ask me for advice or help, then I'll provide it. I generally do that privately, uh, and I don't, I don't get involved in that. This is default respect for other people, and the fact that they're on the journey. As I say, the, the only issue is if, if they start to hurt others, and, and have a clear and malignant intent to hurt others. At that point, you have to say no, yeah. no more yeah uh, yeah on, on that as well people come to me not fairly frequently but you know they do come to me and they're like you know i think i have a father complex or i think i have a mother complex and then, mm, then yeah. that becomes then the first principle and it's like you know it's and that's a functional thing to do and i appreciate that the person would want to go ahead and do that that they're trying to assimilate all the knowledge that they've learned into like a functional unit but it's like all that stuff gets in the way anyway even regardless yeah. of ethics it will just get in the way same thing with with typology that definitely gets in the way Ab, you know abs, ab, absolutely it's like every answer must come down to typology and it's like not yeah. not really it's like forget forget all the things exist even forget the knowledge that you've learned in the books exists and just go at it through experience and intuition that's that's usually what i do with people anyway it's like mm. sort of apart from the real basic stuff like the transference i tend to just basically forget everything else and just sort of run with what my own psyche wants me to talk to the other person about yeah to- totally agree you yeah know. oh absolutely yeah. i mean that's that's the way to establish rapport isn't it yeah but it, it is uh, milton erickson who is probably the greatest hypnotherapist that is popularly known about um the uh, editor of his collected papers the equivalent of Jung's collected works, although they're, they're smaller in volume, but they're very valuable in content, is Ernest Rossi, who is a Jungian analyst and a psychobiologist. Um, Rossi says that when he was watching Milton Erickson work with patients, trying to figure out how he was as clinically effective as he was, Erickson turned on him and said, don't look at me, don't watch me, watch the patient. You'll learn nothing by watching me, nothing. And isn't that a great metaphor for the journey? Yes. Yeah. You go out, you work on yourself, and you work with other people. You don't try and follow or replicate people who you think are more successful or more experienced than you. Get some guidance and advice in a general sense that will help you to take the steps of your own. But go out there and face the reality of other people. You know, and uh, Milton Erickson uh, has got a fantastic way of working with what people call archetypes and symbols. He uses metaphor, he uses narrative, and everything is indirect. And he accesses the unconscious really, really quickly, and he gets it on side. That proves that it is real. It proves that it is separate to consciousness. It proves that it's separate to any kind of ego fiction about what the unconscious is, because he gets results. 
if if he if he if he didn't get results, you would know that the unconscious did not agree with it. The fact that it does and that it cooperates and collaborates shows that the method is real and is working on a real process. And again, with typology, completely agree with you. Um, it's fine if you want to use it for working out relationships, say, in a business setting, in an office, and like who's going to be the best type for this particular role or job and all that. That is absolutely fine. Um, and then people say, well, the Myers-Briggs, for example, is not applicable clinically. Yes, it is. But you have to use it properly. That's the difference. If you use it like you would in a, in a work environment, it ain't going to work. Not going to work at all. And if you start to generalize it out and interpret everybody in terms of its structures, it doesn't work. All you do is lock yourself into a fantasy narrative based on suggestion of your own making and you're not really communicating with the reality of another person at all but i qualify that or i've just said by saying that's in the context of a clinical setting where you're working with the reality the reality not the imposition of typology onto them but the reality of another person and young himself stressed that over and over again you know, but people won't do it. They, they, they want to hang on to the, these easy solutions to things, and then they generate things which pro produces a typology complex, and then a kind of behaviour that it emits from that, which is in effect typism. Everything is reducible to type, but it ain't. Uh, by all means, uh, familiarise yourself with it. It's useful, but to be honest, clinically. Uh, the best use of it is just to get an initial orientation with a person as they mm. present and to assume that the unconscious is the simple mirror image of it is nonsense. All you're going to get is the back end of the ego there. I, I, um, I find the most uh, useful thing from it is how I can adjust myself yeah. to that yeah. person. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I can have some way of modeling how they might be modeling yes. or understanding so things report. beyond that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah have you heard? Uh, I was going to say this is, this is going to annoy you because I, I, I like annoying you sometimes. It's good fun. I've heard the the different cognitive functions and indeed the like INTP, ESFJ, special types. I'm not taking the bait, James. I've heard them be called archetypes before. You like that? Well, that is very naughty, isn't it? You see, I don't I don't say archetypes don't exist. They do exist. The the question is, what are they? What are they really when you chase the ghost? And, and that's the a good sensing question, that actually, to come back to typology. It is, it is indeed. <laughs> oh, you can find them. They're all over the place. They're out in the culture. They're everywhere. You, you try and find them, though, in, in a form which is expressed in our culture in a completely different culture. You'll find there's some similarity, but they're not isomorphically correspondent. They don't overlap. But one thing which is everywhere is instinct. And instincts, remember, are not blind, autonomous, robotic actions of an unconscious animal in a human being. They are also evolved. And they have not just science stimuli in them, they have narratives and expectations and plasticity built into them. And then you can say, if you like, if you want to call that level of instinct an archetype, that's absolutely fine. That's up to, that's up to you. And I'll accept that you're calling it that. But I've been through that phase of my life of just believing that they exist. You know, I've been there. But you've always had you your know, reservations. I've always had reservations. But, mm. but, but because you're told they're there, yes. and then you take that on, yeah. but then when you test that in real life, it starts to run out, and mm. you start to find yourself making excuses for the hypothesis. And then you find that the, the hypothesis isn't necessary to explain it. 
Occam's razor just trims it all away. And then when you look even more broadly, there's every reason to think that they were, as Jung himself said, collective representations in the culture that are just in sympathetic resonance with the genomic anticipation of how your life will unfold. And that genomic expectation is released through instincts, hence instincts and archetypes appear at one re level of resolution to be the same thing. And that, that, that doesn't really trigger me. Counselling triggers me. <laughs> you would have seen that yesterday. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well-triggered. Well-triggered, well-triggered, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know, I, I, I'm aware of that. I'm, I'm aware of, yes, of course the, you the, are. the trigger. And I, and I act up to it sometimes for a bit of fun. No, it, ju it, it just amuses me as well. But I, I, I was thinking on, you know, when we talk cl clinically quite a lot on the, on the channel. And, you know, uh, some people won't be like, well, I'm not interested in sort of the clinical side of things. Absolutely fair enough. However, if something works clinically, then you know it works. So it therefore also works for you too. You know, it's, 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 it's the place where the ideas go to be battle tested. And I was thinking about the idea of, uh, of, of archetypes in that context. It's like, I highly doubt you'd ever sit there functionally and you say to a patient, you have a chronic case of not integrating your inner woman. Or you have a chronic case of not integrating your shadow. Or what you need to do is go and slay the dragon. Because it just doesn't work. That's that's how you can tell. Like it's like, would this idea work to actually make somebody better? Will it create lasting, stable personality change? And the answer with with that common understanding, anyway, of archetypes, I think is abundantly clear to everybody. And Steve, you've done a brilliant job of debunking it on, on this channel. It just doesn't work at all. So it's like, I think what, what, what's functioning? You get such a, a bandwidth of people in, don't you? You do. The the world and his wife come in. So what's appropriate for one person just isn't appropriate for somebody else. And no. you, it's down to you to adapt yourself accordingly. Yeah. And in order to do that, you need a yeah. flexible enough model yeah. as well, don't you, to organize yeah. your thinking. Yeah. With respect to the anima, yeah, you know, uh, what, what is clustered under that concept broadly, mm. uh, all, all of that is real. It's, it's just that, you know, to say that it is a thing in itself rather than lots of things that, that's another matter that, that, that can be could, could be discussed. But I have and will, and I have no problem with this, with the right person introducing the concept of the anima relatively superficially, enough for them to then determine what are these other things that are connected to it. Because these other things like relating, you know, uh, will be of importance to people who are suffering. Yeah. They don't want to hear it's an inner woman, you know. And actually it's it. And it can't be, because the anima is part of a man's psychology. It's, it's, and the, the, this thing that Jung said about um, men having inner woman because they have a minority of female genes yeah. is utter and complete nonsense. And you know this far better than me because of your training. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It is completely utter nonsense. The the X chromosome. I think we were discussing this off air, but the the X chromosome in and of itself does not code for being a woman. It is no. two X chromosomes together. And when you have XY chromosomes, you have the SRY gene on the Y chromosome, which overrides some of the other stuff on the X chromosome, and you develop male things. So it's not even chromosomal either. That's too low resolution. It's the SRY gene makes you a man. That's basically all you really need to say. By yes. default, you might be a woman in that case. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's just a nonsense. But when Jung says that um, a man's psyche is attuned to anticipate woman, absolutely, of course it is. Because the first caregiver you... you expect biologically is female but that's true for both sexes mm -hmm. but uh, additionally uh, men are attuned biologically and genetically to expect to reproduce or to be pushed towards reproducing with women statistically biologically uh, that, that that is the case 
so yes there are lots of things and, and is is the so-called mother archetype somehow separate from the anima or is the mother archetype part of the anima you know it starts yeah. to it starts to break it down starts to run out, you, 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 yeah you, you start to have to generate more and more excuses yeah. for an explanation mm. uh, certainly in, in a practical sense but yeah absolutely instinctively men are born prepared to experience women and yet absolutely that is in effect a virtual image which is fleshed out by experience but that flesh out, fleshing out isn't just the anima complex which is real it's also the experience of the culture and how the culture tells you that your anticipation should be organized and therefore how you should relate to it mm. so it's biopsychosocial again not a, a case of any kind of reductionism. When I hear people claiming that I'm being a bioreductionist, oh god, which is just utter <laughs> shit, <laughs> frankly, <laughs> utter and complete. You hate any of, form of, of uh, reductionism, yeah, yeah, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I am, if you like, a follower of George Engel in that regard. And George Engel made it perfectly clear: the biopsychosocial model is not reductionist. It just allows you to resolve. Yeah, through a lens yeah. at a particular level that is appropriate at any one time for an explanation and then simultaneously look at other levels and come up with a much bigger profile and, uh, yeah. and way of, uh, of approach. This works in the practical world. Oh, definitely. It might not work in the world of interjected ideas that people then just ruminate on in a bovine sense, like one would chew the cud. Mm -hmm. yeah. You can chew that kind of grass or you can chew the other kind of grass and still get stupid ideas out of that and a displacement away from reality. But you know, I'm concerned with, with real world experience on the outside, but also real world experience internally. I do value that. Yeah. Uh, and when it comes to working with people in depth, I go there, I go there with the archetypal level of explanation. I'm right in there with symbols. We haven't touched dream analysis yet. Mm -hmm. Just wait till we get to that. Yeah, oh, we've got loads on dream analysis. The, the plans we've been discussing behind long, the scenes on dream analysis. Is... Working with them, we're completely familiar with symbolization and the way that the unconscious works and what it produces and how you can gain access to that and to use it to transform people. We can do it. We do do this. The thing is, most people ignore biology and that's forcing a compensation. Yes, it is. Very it's much forcing so. yeah. someone mm. to stand up and say, for fuck's sake, realize yes. you're physical as well as just living in your head and that you have a mm. psychosocial dimension to your life and so do other people. And when it comes to real world problems, all of these interact simultaneously. So you get well, if you have to work in the therapy well and you see how awful some yeah. practice is, yeah. you'd understand why. You would, you? you would. And, and then, you know, if you just have a psychoreductionist approach, what happens when you meet a Gestalt therapist who tells you that Jung's full of crap? And that, you know, he's impractical, but they know how to work with symbols. They understand the psyche. And then, and then you speak with someone who's into transactional analysis or transpersonal psychosynthesis mm -hmm. who talk about things beyond Carl Jung and that Jung didn't know anything and that there was a, a super consciousness. Yeah? There are, people, there are people out there within this profession who think they've gone way, way beyond Jung in a transpersonal sense. So how are you going to pressure test that unless you know about them? And that you can really pressure test them honestly and say, is this real enough for me to change my basic approach, my Jungian approach? Do I turn into that suddenly a follower of Roberto Assagioli, who is the transpersonal psychosynthesis founder, who Jung himself said was a genius. And the followers of psychosynthesis use that to say, look, Jung said he was a genius, therefore he's cleverer than Jung. 
and they go off spiraling into mysticism and a complete lack of, of reality orientation. So, you know, what myth are you going to believe in? What psychotherapy myth are you going to believe in? Or are you going to pressure test it against reality? As Jung said, you should do. There's no disrespect to Carl Jung to pressure test his ideas. There is no disrespect to Carl Jung to become yourself, whatever that is, and then respect other people's differences. None whatsoever. Yeah. Agreed. Completely, completely agree. I, I think maybe, you know, we were talking about the anima a couple minutes ago. I was thinking, like, maybe an example of what how an anima might... Uh, how the anima might present clinically. So I was work, working with a guy recently. In fact, I've worked with a few people, actually. It's quite a common thing. I've had it, too. Where it's like you perceive rejection from other people before you've actually experience rejection so you're incredibly you're a really really cautious person you know you might want to hand in work to somebody or you might want to approach somebody or something like that it's like perceived rejection that's the anima at work so that's the resolution where you can bring the anima into it now, if you say to somebody like that integrate your inner woman what what does that mean first of all if you're a masculine man you're going to immediately go what the hell are you talking about and rightfully so but yeah. also it's not going to help you at all because what does integrate your inner woman mean presumably in this context it's be more sensitive yeah. you're already sensitive enough well, I, I can tell you that our approach would be to, to, to do a very broad assessment of the position the unconscious is taking with respect to whatever that person believes consciously at that moment in time where are the memories yeah the anamnesis as Jung called it all knowledge is remembered from Plato yeah he took that on board by anamnesis Though specifically, he means the case history, and he doesn't mean it in a biomedical sense, although you should have a biomedical um, understanding of a person's situation. He would want to know what's, what's presenting right now. What is the attitude of the psyche to even coming in for therapy? What attitude is the psyche taking to you as a therapist? Uh, what anticipation did the psyche have of meeting you? even though the person doesn't know you. So dreams that occur before the therapeutic initial consultation and ones that follow immediately afterward can be very, very important. So this is where you have to be very, very sensitive and where rapport at the widest and deepest possible level is important. Without theoretical assumption, you just let the, let the psyche talk as a natural phenomenon and it will begin to give you what you need to know to help someone. But don't go on about things like that. At that stage, very often, if you do mention this at all, you can you can mention it at the end of a treatment uh, schedule. So somebody can say, "Well, that's great. I'd, I'd like to understand a bit more about what I've been through and uh, what the meaning mm. of the journey is." Then mm. you can help them. Mm. And there is such a thing as bibliotherapy therapy by asking people to read books to inform. Yeah. It just depends what where they want that, yeah. Whether they want it and what what the presenting uh, uh, form is. But always, 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 you need to get rapport. Um, and if it's there, it's there. If it's not, it's not. Yeah. And no amount of theoretical presuppositions no. or impositions mm. or projections or transferences of any kind are going to give you a positive outcome. They'll give you a negative one with respect to that. Well, so, you are your own resource in therapy, yeah. aren't you? Yeah. Totally and utterly on your own, and yeah. you are your own resource, yeah. and you have to adapt yeah. yourself. Yeah, this is, this is why um, the personal myth is so important. Although stupid people have suggested that it isn't. And I say stupid people because I really mean that, you know. Well, um, you repeat things for emphasis. You don't repeat things no. because you've got a problem with no. them or, no. or, or no. neurosis no. about no. them. It's it, for emphasis. The, the personal myth is the anamnesis par excellence and because you engage someone in uncovering it themselves, they are engaged in the process. 
themselves. That will give you rapport. Also, the unconscious will appreciate the fact that you're asking the person to take the unconscious seriously by looking back and seeing what it's been doing all of that person's life and uncovering the anticipations for the future. So the personal myth is vitally important at many, many levels. So if you get that, then you, you do get an indication of, of, of what's going on. So yeah, it's the case history par excellence. And if you work on yourself, it's your own case history par excellence. The, uh, the issue will come when you, having uncovered it, decide whether you are beguiled by it so much, you're not going to let it go. That's the thing. Whether you then hang on to it as a neurotic alibi or a fantasy to avoid life. Uh, or whether you then say, okay, I've got this now. As soon as you say that, you've got your personal equation because you know what your limits are. You know what, what the good bits of you are. You know what shaped what you are for today. At that point, you can put your suit of armor on. At that point, you can get on your horse. You can be a grail knight at that point. Then you're on your own. You're out there in the world making yourself. And uh, that's what I encourage people to do. I encourage people to uncover the personal myth, find the personal equation, say, got that now, now it's down to me, and I'm off. I'm out there into the world to become who I should be, which includes an adaptation to the psychosocial and cultural world as well. Yes, and that's basically why I'm with you too as well. So I, I, have, I have to put, put that out there. It's like, that's why, because it works. Fundamentally, I don't care about anything else. No amount of young, reading young, no amount of following people on the internet, no amount of I'm a psychonaut, no amount of inflation, it was Christianity, none of that worked. But basically, when you were saying to me, go down the personal myth rabbit hole, immediately things came up. And immediately the riddles started writing themselves out. And it's because it's me. It's about me, fundamentally, my life. And it's like, these fantasies are not functional in any, in any way, shape or form. So it's like, there is a general ethos to Jung to live by. Of course, it's in the tagline, which is become who you are. But at the end of the day, it's like, does this work? Yes or no? Is it going to make you smile? Yes or no? And I mean, sustained smile where you don't have to run around with your ego fictions all, all the time. It's like, and I, as far as I'm concerned, people smiling is probably the, the best thing, you know, when they're actually genuinely happy. So I'll, I'll support whatever makes people smile, not what keeps people trapped. Absolutely. And people becoming themselves, you know, for example, as you go on your journey, you, you will change. You, you will know, you know, you won't be who you are now. Well, c compare me now, compare me to a year ago on YouTube. Completely well, different. Yeah, you're a completely different person. But you will author your own narrative, you know, yes. uh, and you'll become yourself. And that means that you will bring things into this field that Paul and I don't know about mm. and haven't personally experienced. And that's absolutely fine by us. It's the way it should be. It's the way it should be. And that's been our ethos all along. See, we're comfortable with who we are and we're comfortable with our journey. So... I'm not trying to hold anybody back. You know, if I can help others, I will, because that's the thread of my life that I have carried forward beyond my personal equation. That's something of value that's always been there, in my own estimation of, of my own self, when I'm through the self-analysis that comes from uncovering your personal myth. So I'm happy for other people to be themselves, so long as they don't hurt other people. That, that offends live and let live. Yes. Well, we've been going for an hour and 20 minutes and mm. my brain's going to start to get fuzzed. So if there's anything else you wanted to say, of course, that would be appreciated. Otherwise, maybe we should close up. Thank Great. you. Thank James. you. Thank Thanks, you. everyone. Cheers. Thank you.
Yeah, sweet. Okay, uh, in which case, thank you everybody for watching. As, as as always, I can't speak anymore, as I was saying, my brain's getting all fuzzy. Um, we, of course, we recently released the Charing Cross method, which Steve and Pauline developed and used on frontline NHS healthcare to help many, many countless people go from exhausted and in all kinds of horrible states to not exhausted and smiling and happy. And that's a wonderful thing, and we'd like for you to experience the exact same thing. So if you are exhausted or burned out or fatigued, or if you would like to not go into that state, then we'd recommend you go down, at least check out the symptoms that we've listed on the sales page because it could be something very very useful to you as i've been there and it's uh, not a very nice place to be and uh with that i guess thank you steve thank you pauline see you all again real soon thank you, cheers bye everyone